and welcome to Gippsland Anglicans on Air. Today we continue with our Accessible Book Club during the season of creation. Week by week, we are hearing chapters of Jonathan Cornford's book, Coming Home, to help us strengthen our Christian understanding and obligations for sustainable living. Morningstar Publishing says, In Coming Home, Jonathan Cornford joins biblical theology with analysis of contemporary problems to help chart a practical, hopeful and life-giving path through troubled times. Today's episode is part three, but don't worry if you've missed an episode, you can listen to Life FM's podcast online anytime. Also, the chapters of this book make sense independently, so you can join in at any point of our journey or plan ahead to hear a particular part. Visit www.gippslandanglicans.org.au for program details. A note about the chapter you are hearing. To keep within our program timeframe, some parts of the chapter have been left out. We invite you to get a copy of the book and read the chapters, and we will also explain those parts when we meet to discuss this section on 14th of September. Today, you will hear from Gippsland Anglican, the Reverend Kathy Turnbull, reading Chapter 2, Work and Leisure, from Coming Home by Jonathan Cornford, published by Morningstar Publishing. Chapter 2, Work and Leisure, Sabbath-Centred Living. Broadly defined, work and leisure are what we spend most of our lives doing when we are not sleeping. It accounts for two-thirds of our time on this earth and almost all of the energy we expend while here. Time is the most valuable thing we have. It cannot be increased or replaced. How can we choose to spend time is how we choose to live our lives. Time is the most valuable thing we can give to God and it is the most valuable thing we can give to other people. The choices we make about how we spend our time, that is our choices about work and leisure, are the foundation of our economic behaviour and therefore of our impact in the world. What's the problem? One of the key characteristics of our modern condition is that so many of us are time poor. The question, have you been busy, is a standard part of our casual greetings to one another. For many, feeling stressed and guilty about not spending enough time with significant people is a perpetual condition. The social effects of our time poverty are profound. There is little doubt that it plays a significant role in relationship breakdown and leading to family breakdown and also to the increasing sense of alienation between parents and children. Time poverty is also a key ingredient in what has become known as community breakdown, which is the decline of participation in community clubs and associations such as sporting clubs, charities, Social isolation and community breakdown are generally recognised as significant contributing factors in the rising incidence of mental illness in Australia, especially depression. Time poverty is also an important determinant of our economic behaviour. Much of the structure of our consumer things such as 24-hour supermarkets, mobile phones, pre-made pasta sauce, dog walking services, ATMs, internet shopping and takeaway food are all part of the burgeoning convenience economy that traps people in a cycle of dependence. They allow us to cope better with our lack of time, but require that we have higher incomes to be able to pay for all of these things. In turn, the higher our incomes, the greater the demands that work tends to place on our time, therefore committing us to dependence on the convenience economy. The convenience economy plays a large role in the overall destructiveness of our wider economy. Supermarkets born in the US during the Great Depression are the flagship of the convenience economy. 
They have become so ingrained in our way of life that it is almost impossible to imagine living without them. In Australia, Woolworths and Coles control 75% of food retail, giving them enormous power to dictate terms to growers and food manufacturers. The pressure that supermarkets place on farmers is a major factor driving unsustainable farming practices, such as overuse of chemicals and irrigation, exhaustion of soils, erosion and salinity. Similarly, the goal... The global reach of Western supermarkets has contributed to the undermining of poor smallholder smallholder farmers in developing countries in favour of large-scale agribusiness. Supermarkets have encouraged excessive packaging of foods and are notorious for their vast wastefulness. It is estimated that perhaps as much as one-third of all food produced in the world goes to waste. If supermarkets are the flagship of the convenience economy, then communications technology is the vanguard. Our consumption of all sorts of time-saving devices, especially telecommunication devices, now makes it possible for us to juggle more things than ever before. However, life lived at a faster and faster pace, with more and more balls in the air, comes at a cost. And the more we feel under pressure, the more we look for things that will make coping easier for us. It is clear that much of our economic behaviour is driven by our time poverty and our continual desire for things to be easier and more convenient. Work. The central determinant of our time status is the role that work plays in our lives. Broadly defined, most adults spend the majority of their waking hours in work of some form or another. Whether it be paid or unpaid, recognised or unacknowledged, outside of the home or inside the home, most of us need to work. Nevertheless, many of our assumptions, attitudes and behaviours around work are deeply unhealthy. Most obviously, the experience of overwork has become increasingly common. Over the last three decades, working patterns in Australia have undergone significant change, such that Australians now on average work among the longest hours in the developed world, with a greater tendency to work on weeknights and weekends, and many employed on a casual basis only. Research shows clear links between these sorts of working patterns and unhappy family environments, characterised by some consistent elements, poor health for workers, strained family relationships, parenting marked by anger, inconsistency and ineffectiveness, and most worryingly, reduced child wellbeing. Perhaps the greatest driving force behind increasing working hours in Australia is the incessant aspiration for a higher living standard. Certainly, rising house prices have demanded Australians seek higher incomes, but at the same time, expectations about the size and quality of housing, which many Australians want, has risen dramatically as well. Similarly, Australian credit card debt, much of it spent on unnecessary consumption, is amongst the highest in the world. Although Australians have more stuff than ever before, they are also feeling more strain on the incomes. For some forced into casualised work, overwork has become an economic necessity. For others driven by ideals of career success, overwork is a symptom of misplaced priorities. The label of workaholic is sometimes seen as a badge of honour for hard workers. However, like alcoholism, it can be a serious and widespread condition driven by deep emotional dysfunction that can be highly damaging to relationships and families. By contrast, while many experience time poverty and overwork, there is also a significant portion of the population, much higher than is indicated by official unemployment rates, who have never worked, probably never will work, and whose children will also probably never work. 
These are people with too much time on their hands, also a deeply unhealthy condition. Clearly, an economy that is characterised by both widespread overwork and entrenched generational unemployment is not a healthy one. Of course, much of the work that is performed in our society is not even called work because it is not paid employment, such as the work of caring for children, the elderly, the sick and disabled, and the work of clothing and feeding a family and keeping a household. To this day, most of this work is done by women. As money is really the measure of value in our culture, this unpaid work often goes unrecognised and unvalued. This means that many who are performing work that really is necessary often suffer from isolation, low self-esteem and economic hardship. This too can be another serious factor in relational strain, family breakdown and depression. What about leisure? The times we are not working, including home-based work, eating or sleeping can broadly be referred to as leisure time. How can we choose to spend this time says a lot about our culture and is also an important factor in our economic behaviour. The most glaring fact about contemporary leisure time in Australia is that most of it is mediated by a screen. The use of audiovisual media, TV, DVDs, internet, smartphones, computer games, iPads and iPods occupies well over half the leisure time of the average Australian, with an average of over 1.5 hours of leisure time each day given just to internet usage. The Australian Bureau of Statistics found that while on average the amount of overall leisure time available to Australians decreased between 1997 and 2006, the amount of leisure time spent in front of a screen increased substantially. The areas of leisure time that suffered the most were sport and outside activity, talking, writing and reading correspondence, games, hobbies and arts and crafts. This has a number of huge implications. Firstly, it means that our leisure time has largely become an act of consumption. We are consuming leisure products rather than actively pursuing our recreation. This is another major factor driving the technological consumption described above. Secondly, most of the screen-based entertainment we are consuming, including internet usage, either overtly or subtly reinforces and promotes the claims and demands of the consumer economy. If we spend hours each day receiving these sorts of messages, then we cannot help but be influenced by them. Thirdly, the amount of time given over to screens comes at a direct cost to the amount of time we actually spend in the presence of other people. At a time when our relationships need more work than ever, we're opting to turn to the alternative realities provided through a screen. Technologically mediated leisure time also has obvious implications for our bodily health. And there are clear linkages between our increasingly sedatory way of life and the rising incense of obesity and diabetes. On the other extreme, many who have become concerned to maintain bodily health have become caught up in a cult of fitness that can also be time dominating. Something as simple as providing healthy activity for our bodies has itself become an exercise in high consumption, requiring specialised clothing, specialised equipment, mediated by specialist trainers or instructors and pursued in specialist centres. It culminates in the daily spectacle of branded lycra-clad people pounding on a running machine in a fitness club, listening to an iPod and staring blankly at a screen playing commercial TV. Much of the underlying drive of this culture stems not from a healthy concern for the body, but from an entirely unhealthy cult of the body beautiful, which is an extension of the culture of self. Such recreation does not recreate us, it deepens our alienation.
So what does the Bible say? It should be instructive to us that one of the first and most oft-repeated commands in the Old Testament law concerns how we use time. It is the command to keep the Sabbath. For many Christians today, the idea of Sabbath has tended to be trivialised and largely ignored. We have chiefly understood it as a command to be religious for a day, which we subconsciously interpret as being boring and joyless. Because Jesus was critical of the legalism surrounding Sabbath keeping in his own time, we have often interpreted this to mean that Jesus discarded the idea altogether. But he was not discarding the idea of Sabbath at all. He was, in fact, trying to reclaim its true meaning. The Sabbath was made for humankind. Mark 2, verse 27. The implications of the Old Testament command to keep the Sabbath are far more are more far-reaching than we may have suspected. The command to stop work for one day of every week is given to a people who have just been liberated from brutal slavery. As people who take two-day weekends for granted, we perhaps fail to see the radical social justice implications of the command that everyone, even slaves and foreigners, has a right to rest and no one should have to bear an endless burden of labour. Two, the call to stop work is also a call to place limits on our production and our accumulation and at the same time to trust that there is enough abundance in God's creation to supply a day of rest. Three. In Exodus 23, verse 10 to 11, the Sabbath principle is extended to creation itself, to let the land rest for one year in every seven, so that even the wild animals have enough to eat. This is an ancient recognition of the need to place limits on human production for the sake of ecological sustainability. Four, the core commandment concerning the Sabbath is to keep it holy. Some strains of Judaism and Christianity have interpreted this to mean a day of seriousness and solemnity in which fun is absolutely banned. However, if we remember that the meaning of the word holy is related to wholeness and healing, then we are really being commanded to take time to patch up the damage and scars we inevitably leave behind in our task-focused week. This suggests that we should give recreation more serious thought. What things will help to recreate us, to make new our spirits, our relationships, our communities and our natural world? Five, finally, the call to Sabbath is a call to step back from our blinkered, task-focused world of work and to remember, to remember the things that are actually important in life and to put things back into their proper perspective. Fundamentally, it is a call to remember our need of God. The Bible has much to say about the place of work in our lives. Most strikingly, in Genesis 2.15, we are told that participating in work is fundamental to our created identity and purpose. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, it says. Without some purposeful work to undertake, we are not fully ourselves. The Bible is eminently practical in recognising that we must work to sustain ourselves and our families and affirms that there is both dignity and meaning in labouring to live. Paul says that anyone unwilling to work should not eat in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. However, there is also recognition of the profound satisfaction that we derive from good work, that is work that is intelligently, skillfully and creatively undertaken in the pursuit of a good purpose. In the biblical vision, good work has a central place in the good life. However, as in all things, the Bible also lifts the veil on the dark side of work. For the fallen Adam and Eve cast out of Eden, 
the vision of good work had become a curse of futile toil. Their distance from God is immediately evidenced in their experience of work, Genesis 3, 17 to 19. In Exodus, the archetypal story of liberation for God's people is a story of liberation from bad and exploitative work. The Bible also asks critical questions about our attitudes to work, the sort of work we undertake and the underlying motivations for our work. Perhaps most importantly, the Bible is consistently scathing about devoting our working lives in the pursuit of a hollow dream of wealth, comfort and success. You fool, Jesus says, when he tells the story of a man who wasted his life on the pursuit of meaningless wealth and comfort in Luke 12, 20. The biblical challenge is to think critically about how we invest our limited time and energy on this earth. And this prompts us to think about what things are actually worth our labour. Moreover, not only is the Bible interested in the underlying motivations and purpose of our work, it is fundamentally concerned about the ethics of the work that we do. There is no room in the Bible for any justification of work that involves harm to other people or to the community as a whole. Much of the work of the prophets is given to exposing and denouncing the systematic injustices of the respectable world of commerce and business. In the eyes of the prophets, just because something is legal or even standard practice does not make it acceptable and does not change the fact that people are suffering because of it. Examples can be found in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos and Micah. Of course, the most profound ideas about work in the Bible are found in the New Testament. It is fair to say that New Testament writers show little interest in the minutiae of what work we do or our place in society, even if we are slaves. Whoever we are and whatever our position, there is one big idea about work that applies to everyone. We are all called to participate in the work of God. This core idea is articulated in many different ways again and again. Most profoundly, the resurrected Jesus says to the disciples in John 20, As the Father sent me, so I send you, in verse 21. And what is Jesus' work that has now been entrusted to us? The Apostle Paul puts it most succinctly in 2 Corinthians by saying, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 20. The job with which we have been entrusted is nothing less than participating in the healing of the brokenness of the world. This means working to restore the broken relationship between humanity and God broken relationships between people, and the broken relationships between people and creation. This is such a big job that we all have a part. There can be no such thing as unemployment in the kingdom of God. Paul expects that members of the Christian community will be involved in widely varying work. However, he urges all of them to think about how their work, whatever it is, can play some part in God's work. There are many jobs to be done and many different things needed. The most important thing is to think about our work in terms of the contribution it makes to the community. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all and especially for those of the family of faith, Galatians 6.10. So how might we respond? So how do we use the biblical vision of work and rest to inform the choices we make in a world in which unhealthiness predominates in both? 
It is no exaggeration to say that the range of different actions we can take are limitless, from major life-changing decisions to small changes we can make today. Most of us would admit that we are unhappy about some aspects of how work and rest unfolds in our lives. While this is an important and necessary realisation, the secret is to not try to solve it all in one fell swoop. We need to think about what changes we can and should make carefully and prayerfully and learn to accept the things we cannot change for the time being at least. Some things we will be able to act on immediately, but other changes will be ones we will need to work towards over a longer period of time, maybe even years. Below is a range of things to think through in the areas of work and leisure. Under work, one, standards of living. If we are wanting our working lives to contribute to the greater work of God, then we cannot think about this apart from the issue of standards of living. How much do we need? How we answer this question is the central determinant of the major time allocations we will make in our lives between paid employment and other endeavours, and also in what type of paid work we pursue. But can we live with less? If we can answer the yes to this question, then we can potentially liberate a whole realm of creative choices in the world of work. Two, rethinking household work. When it comes to the work of the household, we all have got the wrong end of the stick. In the 20th century, men became the chief wage earners, divorced from the home and housework. Household work became the lot of women, unrecognised, unvalued. With the rise of feminism, women too understandably wanted to abandon such stigmatised and isolated work, the result being a convenience economy in which no one wants to undertake the labour of running a home. Yet while women have moved more into paid employment, they still bear an unfair burden of household labour. However, there is perhaps no more satisfying work than the mutually shared and skillfully undertaken work of running a productive household economy that gives health to and strengthens the bonds of all its members. Indeed, it is hard to imagine, especially when one considers the raising of children and the care of the sick and elderly, more important work. A healthy overall attitude to work requires both men and women to reappraise much more positively the work of the household and to renew a sense of partnership in it. In most cases, this means men picking up their act at home. Indeed, many steps in other areas of this book, such as consumption and environment, require time, intelligence, energy and creativity be given to the household economy. Three, non-paid work. If we are prepared to live with less, then one option that is opened up is the possibility of working part-time to give more time to good work that is not paid. In Christian ministry circles, this idea has long been referred to as tent making from the Apostle Paul's example of making tents to fund his work. However, tent making should not be restricted to Christian ministry. It can be applied to volunteering in the community sector, working for a church community, building creative ventures in community, caring for family or pursuing a richer, more productive, more sustainable and healthier household economy. Four, choosing paid employment. What job should I choose? This is a big question for many school leavers entering study and graduates entering the workforce. It is also increasingly a question for many who have been in the workforce for a long time. Everyone has different abilities, skills and education, and the range of options in paid employment for each one of us is quite different if we are seeking to align our paid work as much as we can with God's work. Then there are a number of things to think through. One, what are you good at and what do you enjoy? 
This is obviously an important consideration. Sometimes we really are called to undertake things we don't enjoy and don't feel particularly good at, but mostly God wants us to employ the gifts and passions that we have. Two, is the work you are considering in any way damaging or harmful to people or creation? There are some jobs that Christians clearly should not do. Many people could argue that Christians shouldn't be involved in the arms industry, pornography, gambling or tobacco. Some people feel that Christians should have no part in advertising or speculating on financial markets and there are large grey areas. What about the pharmaceutical industry, which has an appalling ethical record, but which provides a service that can, when done well, alleviate much suffering? These are thorny questions that cannot be answered here, but they absolutely should be the sorts of questions we are asking when making decisions about employment. Three, what contribution does this work make to the world? Can we seek employment in activities that contribute something positive? It is no accident that Christians tend to be overrepresented in the help, helping professions, doctors, nurses, carers, teachers, aid workers and social workers, and this is as it should be. However, we should remember that the world needs far more professions than these. We really do need good farmers, plumbers, mechanics, IT people, builders and thousands of other jobs that many people hardly consider are important. How do you perform your work? Whether you choose to be a doctor, social worker, plumber or mechanic, the extent to which your work actually makes a positive contribution to the world depends entirely on how you do it. Most of us have experienced how, in a time of desperate need, a good doctor, mechanic or plumber, someone who does their work skillfully, sensitively, compassionately and with understanding, is something of a godsend. However, getting a bad doctor, mechanic or plumber at such a time can just add to the suffering. In essence, doing a good job by a biblical definition entails being fully conscious of the human dimension of our work, that is, its impact on people and understanding that people are not just biological machines. Often performing work in a way that is more fully attuned to this reality will require doing things differently from the norm of how they are done in your profession and may even bring you into conflict with other workers or management who have different priorities. It should come as no surprise that trying to follow the way of Jesus in the workplace may well come at a cost. But what about leisure? One, making time for time. Many people reading this will scoff at the very idea of leisure time because their time is under such constant pressure. But why? What is driving such busyness? There are periods and seasons for all of us when business necessarily claims a large portion of our time. But if this is a constant condition, we need to start to think critically about the damage it might be causing in our relationships, our spiritual life, our health, and even our ability to think clearly. Somehow, in some way, most of us have a need to reclaim some time, and that will require re-evaluating the value of other things that claim it. 2. Rethink recreation. How we spend our free time is a good indicator of what we really desire. The fact that such time is increasingly referred to as me time is a good indicator of where our culture is at. We need to pull, put some hard thought into asking what things actually recreate us, that is, what things make us new, as opposed to simply distracting or anaesthetising us. To what extent does our recreation contribute further to our alienation from others and the ill health of either the body, mind or spirit? What sorts of recreation are good for our bodies, minds and spirits and good for our relationships and good for the earth too? Three. Recreation that is not consumption. 
To what extent is our recreation dependent on acts of consumption? Are we dependent on someone else to supply us with a product or service to enjoy ourselves? Does having fun require spending money? We have been so shaped and moulded by advertising to desire the pleasures of the consumer economy that it is becoming harder and harder for us to conceive of activities beyond the entertainment industry as fun or interesting. But this is our great need, to actively reclaim control over that which is shaping our desires and to rediscover the enjoyment of so many things that come for free and which do not cost the earth. Four, reducing screen time. We live in an age in which so much of our time is captured by screens, whether we are watching TV or DVDs, surfing the internet, playing video games, engaging in text conversations or posting to Facebook from an iPhone. Screens are beginning to dominate much of our relational time and mental world. While we might tell ourselves that some of this screen activity is social activity, it cannot help but have an impact on our immediate relationships. Moreover, the amount of time we spend with screens drives our massive overconsumption of the gadgets that hold them. It is also time that could be spent in an, any number of other activities, such as playing with the kids, gardening, sport and exercise, music and art, reading a book, doing some baking, visiting someone or just sitting still and having a good old-fashioned think. Five, time disciplines. The idea of the Sabbath is predicated on the understanding that left to ourselves, we do not necessarily do what is good for us, such as stopping work. We need some frameworks and disciplines that help us remember what is good, even if our immediate inclinations might not be to choose them. There are any number of ways in which the idea of Sabbath can be creatively applied to fulfil its original intention, that is, as a time for wholeness. Time disciplines can be framed either positively or negatively, Nominating times of the week when you will not engage in certain activity, such as shopping or looking at a screen, or times when you will do some things, such as family games, reading or prayer. While different personality types are inclined to different levels of structure in regard to time, nearly all of us benefit from having some time disciplines in place. Of course, the elephant in the room is, what about time for God? If God is the voice that speaks out of sheer silence, as in 1 Kings 19.12, how can he get a look in amidst our world of perpetual noise and distraction? If there is one area where we desperately need counter-cultural time disciplines, it is for prayer, for reading the Bible and discussing our faith within our community. Our cultural programming tells us that such things are useless, but these practices are the only real oxygen there is to the life of faith.